Okay, guys, if you would, <laughs> would you stand one more time? <laughs> we're back in First Peter today after taking a week off last week, and we're starting chapter four today. We're going to do we're going to look at the first six verses of chapter four. So I'll read the first six verses. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. You guys can be seated. Okay, so today we're going to talk about really just continuing the section we've been in, the, the theme of the book itself, Peter, and really this, for the last several weeks, we've been talking about, in some form or fashion, suffering, living the Christian life and suffering, persecution and these type of things. So we're going to continue that today. The title of the message is Sanctified Through Suffering. We're going to look at how God does indeed sanctify us through suffering. Suffering's Obviously a thing that a lot of um, churches don't want to talk about, you know, probably not, probably not the best growth strategy to grow a big church to talk about suffering, but the scriptures speak clearly to it. And so I was thinking of um, just examples, illustrations, I guess you could say, that maybe would kind of lead us into the text. You know, because God, again, we're going to see that God uses, I think most of you guys already know this, but... God does indeed use suffering of all kinds to sanctify us. You know, I thought of as uh, as being a parent. Obviously, as all of us have had parents growing up in homes, and and so many times, our you think back, your parents did you know withheld stuff from you, um, maybe took certain things away from you. But but why did they do it? And and why do we do that as parents? It, it's because we we want what's best for our children, right? You know, sometimes we take something away, whether it be a video game or it could be anything that, that we could see that might be maybe not the best for the child. And at the time, the child may look at it as, as they're suffering. But we know we're doing what's best for them. Obviously, that's a, just a very weak comparison because we can, we can be mistaken even in that sometimes, make mistakes as parents. But God never makes a mistake. And so we know that when He says that He uses trials in our lives to sanctify us, we know, then we know He's doing that which is best. Because obviously He's a perfect Father. And so that's what we're going to see today. That God does indeed sanctify us through suffering. And in this case, suffering specifically um, persecution and, and these, this type of suffering. So let's look at uh, let's look at the text in, in chapter four, verse one, and we'll go through this. So I'll just ask you the question, really, kind of the question: 
hanging us, hanging over us throughout the day, throughout the message is how are we sanctified through suffering? As we look at this text, just kind of have that question in your mind. We'll try to answer it. How are we sanctified through suffering? And the first thing we're going to look at in verse 1, the first half of verse 1, will be, I guess you could say, the main point of the message. And then we'll have five things kind of flowing off of that. But the first thing we need to see is that we need to think like Christ. We just sang a song about having our minds on Christ, but we also need to think like Christ. Look at, look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Arm yourselves with the same purpose. Uh, depending on what uh, translation you have, what version you have, this, this whole idea of arming yourselves with the same purpose, it, it, it means the same attitude, okay? the same thought, the same principle, the same thinking, I think is what the ESV says. Arm yourselves with the same thinking. And, and it's the same thinking as that of Christ. And so we must, this, this phrase, arm ourselves, we must arm ourselves. It's a, it's a military term, okay? And it's with the intention to suffer. We must arm ourselves with the, with the intention, or in other words, we must prepare in our minds as a Christian to live a faithful Christian life that we're going to suffer. Okay? We're going to suffer. We need, in other words, we need to think like Christ. And it says, therefore, in verse 1, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same purpose or same thinking. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, we can go back to chapter 3, verse 18, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, to see that. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. And I think the better rendering of that is Christ also suffered for sins. Yes, He did die, but the context of that section is that He suffered and so he's telling us, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose, the same mindset. In other words, be willing to suffer as Christ did. Be willing to suffer as Christ did. Now, we know that we're not going to suffer exactly like Christ did. So don't compare your suffering to Christ. We're not going to be, you know, bearing the sins of the world, obviously, anything like that. But as far as in suffering, at the hands of the opposition of the sinful world, we need to be prepared. We need to have that mindset. We need to think like Christ. In other words, uh, in verse 18, what I just read, listen to what it says. For, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. In other words, Christ suffered to accomplish God's will. Right? So we need to Obviously, in a much smaller way, we need to be willing. We need to be prepared. We don't need to to be naive, I guess you could say. That, that we need to be willing to suffer and not be surprised by it. I think it's later on in chapter 4, and in verse 12, he uses that word. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you that you're going through because of your suffering. So we need to prepare ourselves mentally. We need to think like Christ. Christ knew what he was going to face from this sinful world. And so we need to we need to think like him. 
Over in Philippians 2, real quickly, before we move on. Um, Philippians 2, verses 5-8. through 8, We can see this, this mindset, this attitude of Christ. Philippians 2, 5-8. through 8, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Really, that verse 8 is really all I wanted to look at. Just having that mindset of Christ, thinking like Christ. Be, in other words, we need to be willing to be obedient no matter what kind of suffering may come. Okay? So how, how are we sanctified through suffering? We need to start out by... Like, like, like Peter says, arming ourselves with the same purpose, the same thinking as that of Christ. And then when we do think like Christ, when we begin to think like Christ, we'll look at five things here that I, that I saw from these verses. First of all, number one, we are willing to suffer. When we truly think like Christ and have the mind of Christ, view life through the lens of Christ, we're going to be willing to suffer. Because when we're truly thinking like Christ, we're going to have a proper mindset of this life. We're going to have an eternal mindset of this life. We're going to understand that God did not place us where He placed us primarily for our comfort, in other words. But that we have an eternal mindset. It, our willingness to suffer even to the point of death. That's what Christ... That's what He calls us to. To be a follower of Christ. Doesn't mean we're going to lose our life. But we need to be willing. Be willing to suffer. Even to that point. Turn over to Matthew 10 real quickly. We'll just look at one, uh, one scripture or, or one short passage here. Where we, really, we really see this. Just that cost that, that Christ was always proclaiming to the crowds. The cost of following Jesus. We're not going to read it, but you remember when He he, he said to count the cost, right? You're going to build a tower, you need to figure out how much it's going to cost for the materials. Just statements like that. If if you're going to follow Me, you need to calculate the cost. It costs to follow Christ. So Matthew 10, 34-38. He says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. I just really wanted to focus on that last statement. Although those, those first three verses are so powerful. Um, you know, if, if you're born in a Christian home, maybe you won't experience these kind of things as much. But, but these statements are so true, guys, that many times the biggest battles we have is in our own home. I, I've, experienced, I've experienced it on all levels. I know I've stated that before, but... Um, People in my family at all levels. Parents, siblings, children. The cross of Christ brings division. It just does. 
Um, and obviously in that culture back then, other cultures even now, in the Middle East, uh, you come to Christ, you're disowned. You're put out. But the cross, in verse 38, He who does not take His cross and follow after Me is not worthy of Me. And I know we've talked about this before, but His followers, the people of that day, they understood what He meant when He said, when He talked about the cross. That was an instrument of death. And so what Christ is saying is that very thing. He who does not take His cross, He who is not willing to give His life for Me, don't even bother coming. You're not worthy to be My disciple. So that's part of the cost. When we think like Christ, when we truly think like Christ as as believers, and we have that same attitude, and we view life as as Christ views it, and the Gospel, the the glory of the Gospel, and the the glory of following Christ, we're going to think like He does. And we're going to realize that our life's not our own. And I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, even if it costs me my life. Because what is this life? It's a vapor. So we need to begin to, first of all, we need to, Think like Christ. When we begin to think like Christ, we're going to be willing to suffer. And then, and then secondly, when we, when we think like Christ, in the second part of verse 1, just to kind of continue the thought, we're, we're going to be willing to suffer. And when we suffer, we cease from sin or make a break with sin. Okay, so that's, that's a little bit on the, on the surface look could be a little bit of a difficult passage. And there are there's some, a couple different views on this, what exactly he's saying. But first of all, let's, let's remind ourselves, what, what are we suffering for? What's the context? What are we suffering for? It's not, it's not talking about suffering illness or suffering financial difficulties. Those things are realities in life. And God sanctifies us through those things. We're obviously not talking about suffering for being a jerk to people, being rude to people. No, we're suffering for what's for doing what's right. You guys remember that? Back in chapter 3, verses 14 and verses 16 through 17 reminds us of that. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, okay, you are blessed in verse 16. And keep a good conscience so that so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ. And then verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right. So this is a suffering for doing what is right. This is a suffering, I really like verse 16 the best. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ. So that so obviously we know it is specifically Christian behavior is why we're suffering. Now, you're not going to suffer a whole lot by feeding the hungry. Okay. You're not going to suffer all the while. Now, is that part of being a Christian when we have the opportunity? Absolutely. But this is specifically talking about gospel ministry. That's when you're going to suffer the pushback from the world. There's many people who they have no dealings with Christ and they, they can do these acts of kindness. You're not going to suffer pushback from the world. But when you... When you take the Gospel, when you include the Gospel, this Christian behavior, this behavior that's in Christ, there's going to be suffering. It's inevitable. 
So this phrase here, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Uh, There's a a couple different views that I read. One of them is that this suffering in the flesh, this, this one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, it's just, it's just talking about one that is, that is suffered to the point that it results in death. Somebody who's died for their faith. And, and obviously somebody who's died for their faith has ceased from sin. So, I mean, obviously that's a true statement. We'll, go, we'll come back to that later. You know, Paul says in Philippians, to live as Christ, to die is gain. So when a believer dies, obviously we're going to cease from sin. We won't be dealing with sin anymore. Um, and, then, and then it's obviously not, okay, one view it's not, because again, uh, somebody, could, somebody could read that phrase, has ceased from sin, and see, see, you can reach sinless perfection in this world. That's not what it's talking about. If you remember what 1 John says in chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, whoever says he has no sin uh, deceives himself and the truth is not in us. I'm going I'm to read it. And obviously John was written to believers. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. So the ceasing from sin does not mean that we reach a sinless perfection. So this is the, 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 the view that I believe the text is, is, is describing. Um is this. It might take me a minute to communicate it, but um, I think you'll see it as we go. Um, those who suffer, okay, are, are these, the, these people here in verse 1, are, are, are those who suffer for righteousness sake, and then they still go on obeying God. Okay? I'll explain it more further as we go. They, so they suffer, they're suffering for the gospel and then they still go on obeying God. And as a result, as their faithfulness, even through suffering, they've shown that they have truly made a break with sin. Okay? They've truly made a break with sin. In other words, they've demonstrated. When you think of somebody suffering, suffering severe persecution, maybe not just once, but suffering for being faithful to Christ, what they're doing, they're, they're demonstrating that their love for Christ through their obedience. Remember, what did Christ say? If you love me, you will obey me. That's, that's the proof of our love for Christ that we're willing to obey God. So they demonstrated that their love for Christ through their obedience is a greater motivation in life rather than avoiding suffering by the preservation of self. Okay? So they've they demonstrated. What did Jesus say in His call to follow after Me? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Me. Deny yourself. The root of all sin is self. What does the world say? Uh, love yourself. It's all self, self, self. Jesus says the very opposite. The definition of a disciple of Christ is one who denies yourself. Self is the root of sin. So this is a demonstration that when somebody can suffer for Christ and they continue on, they're they're showing that reality 
that they have truly denied themselves. They're proven that. They're proven the reality that they have, they have indeed ceased from sin. They have indeed made a break with sin. That their life is now all about following after Christ. Denying self. And so if you've ever suffered, guys, if you've ever suffered the pushback from this culture simply because of your faith in Christ, it greatly strengthens a believer. It really does. I don't even know how to explain it. But I know that I've experienced it. Uh, listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3, and I'm going to comment some more on this. I just Philippians 3, if you have your Bible. Turn to Philippians 3. Because I think that's what this ceasing from sin is. Philippians 3, 8 through 10. And obviously, Paul's talking about his former life as a Pharisee, that 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 none of this matters anymore, that it's all about knowing Christ. But we're, we're going to read 8 through 10 and, and, and kind of hone in on verse 10. More than that, I count all things to the to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. This fellowship of His sufferings, it's Paul is, Paul is saying that, that more than anything that he desires to know Him. The power of His resurrection, that's the, the power of the victorious Christian life, the resurrected life, and then the, the fellowship with His sufferings. That phrase means He desires this, above all, this deep communion of suffering with Christ. When we suffer for Christ, that's what happens, guys. When you suffer for Christ, for righteousness' sake, you have a special communion with Him. And, and Christ's Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, comforts a Christian during that time. The, the idea of being conformed to His death, I think, will help us to see maybe even what Peter's saying. Paul says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship, this deep communion of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. That phrase, when Paul said being conformed to His death, Paul had, what he is saying is he had that mind of Christ. He, he was thinking like Christ. He was, he was in, in other words, Paul lived, okay? He lived for the glory of Christ. He lived to take the Gospel to those who opposed Him, even if it meant His death. So it's being conformed to His death is to, to live and even die to reach sinners. That was Christ's mindset. That was Paul's mindset. And that's what Paul's saying here. He says, I desire, he said, nothing else even matters. All of my former achievements, it's all about knowing Him and, 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 and having the fellowship of His sufferings when, when we're doing His will. See, when we're doing His will, and we're that locked in upon Christ and His mission, because it's going to talk about the will of God in the next verse. 
We have ceased from sin. Not, not sinless perfection. But we're pursuing Christ. We're pursuing the glory of God. It's a demonstration that that person's really, they really are not living for themselves anymore. It's about the world. It's about love for Christ. It's about a love for neighbor. Do you guys remember the missionary Jim Elliott who was killed? Um, he, he was killed in 1956. Taking the gospel to him and some others to the, to the Aka tribe, the people of Ecuador. And of course they were, they were killed, brutally killed, taking the, by doing this very thing, being willing to take the gospel to hostile people that had never heard. And they were killed real quickly. And then Elizabeth Elliot, his wife, spent the next two years as a missionary to the very ones that killed her husband. This is that very mindset that Paul's talking about. Okay? She has... In other words, these people were demonstrating that they were no longer living for self. That in that sense, they had indeed ceased from sin and are pursuing God's will even in the midst of suffering. And I think, I think verse 2 helps, helps shed some light on that. But, but this whole suffering for Christ, if you've ever experienced it, just suffering for the sake of righteousness, suffering for the sake of the Gospel, I believe this galvanizes our faith. It, that just meaning it, it can electrify, energize, stimulate, invigorate, can spur on a person's faith. It can keep a person from getting cold and dead and dry, in other words. This intimate suffering with Christ. Intimate fellowship of suffering with Christ. And that's why... I mean, those, those are the two major ways to look at this verse. And, and, and that's why I don't think that, that the person in verse 1 is ceasing from sin through death, I don't think that's the context because of verse 2. It says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. You see that? It's all about us moving forward. And so the, the, the third thing we're going to see, first we saw, well the main point, we need to think like Christ. And when we think like Christ, we're willing to suffer. When we suffer, we, we, we cease from sin we, or make a break with sin. We, and then thirdly, in verse 2 and 3, we know where we're going. We know where we're going. Verses 2 and 3. I hope this is coming out okay. I hope you guys are following me. Verse 2. It says, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. The phrase in the flesh right there, that just means the rest of our time here on earth. Okay, That, that word flesh there, it's not, it's not talking about our sinful, the sinful aspect of our flesh. But so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. 
Okay, in, the, in these verses 2 and 3, guys, we're going to clearly see that we are indeed aliens and exiles and strangers in this world. That's what we're going to see here. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. I jumped down. Uh, I, went, I went too far in my notes. Sorry. Back up. <laughs> we know where we're going. Okay, we know where we're going. In other words, we know where we're going in life. It says, arm yourselves to suffer in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves to suffer. Arm yourselves with the same purpose. In verse 2, it starts out, so as to. Okay, so the flow is like this. Arm yourselves with the same mind. Or arm yourselves with the same mindset to suffer. So as to. Or in order to. Or as a result to live the rest of the time in the flesh, the rest of your earthly life, in other words, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. No longer for the lust of men. No longer, when you think about your former life before Christ, we're to, we're to have this mind of Christ. We're to think like Christ. We're to arm ourselves with the same purpose to get an eternal mindset. So we, so we don't spend the rest of the time on earth living for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. It all starts with thinking like Christ. When we think about the lusts of men, we think about our former life. In Romans 6, Paul speaks to that. He says, therefore, what benefit... Were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed of? When we think about our former life, the lusts of men, it's things that we're ashamed of. In other words, we've we've ceased with that. We're willing to suffer for Christ. And not go back to those things that that when we think about those, we're now ashamed of. those, Those things that lead to death. But for the will of God. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We're not going to live the rest of our life here on earth no matter how long we got, guys. It's really, you know what it's saying? Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life, the time that we have, no matter how long that time is, living for the lust of men, but for the will of God. I think a great example of this is, is in Acts 8. In Acts 8, 1 through 5. If you got your Bible, Acts 8, 1 through 5. So, this is when Stephen had just been stoned. <laughs> that means he had had stones thrown at him. Okay, I know that sounds kind of. Stephen had just been stoned by the Jews for preaching the gospel. And in, in Acts 8, verse 1, it says this Saul, Saul of Tarsus, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered... Because of the persecution, what did they do? They went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. We see these disciples 
Suffering, right? Suffering persecution. And what are they doing? They're not falling away from God. No, they're, they're, they're chasing after the will of God. What was the will of God? What, I mean, what, did, what, what is the will of God in this context? What did Christ say? Go and make disciples of all nations. We see the disciples doing this. Through suffering, through their suffering, it leads them to being more faithful in their evangelism. Do you see that? They're going around preaching the Gospel. It says Philip's even preaching to the enemies of the Jews, the Samaritans. And so we see that through, through the persecution, through their suffering, we see in a sense, wow, these people truly have ceased from sin. They truly are denying themselves and they're following after Christ. God is using that very suffering in their life for their sanctification. You see that? In other words, in, this, in point number three, we know where we're going. We, we know where we're going. We're going to follow the will of God when we have the mind of Christ and we, and we, we know suffering's coming. And when we do suffer, we're going to obey God. And we're going to allow our suffering to be used for the glory of God. We're not going to be caught off guard. He warns us that suffering's coming. And these disciples, we see that. That suffering came and it just, it just fueled them to live for the will of God. So we know where we're going. We're not turning back to sin, to the sin that we're now ashamed of. We're not turning back to self. We have truly denied ourselves. We have truly ceased from sin as our habit of life. The world is not our home, in other words. This is a battle that we're in. This is a war that we're in. This is a war for souls that we're in. The will of God, in this, in this case, is to make disciples. It's to make disciples. It's to please Him. The will of God is to please Him, guys. It made me think of 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. You really see this mindset here. 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Paul says to Timothy, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that He may please the One who enlisted Him as a soldier. When we are thinking like Christ, when we have the same purpose as Christ, our main objective in life is to please Him. And God uses suffering to purify us, to sanctify us. That's the purpose of suffering. And in verse 3, it says, for the time already passed, is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That, that word for really explains why believers should, should pursue God's will with the rest of their life. Because we've already, in other words, verse 3 saying, you, the time already passed is, suf is sufficient for you to have carried out all of these sinful lifestyles, in other words. So that word for, it explains why we should pursue God's will with the rest of our life. 
Because we've already spent sufficient. That means more than enough time living for the lusts of men. Living for the desires of the Gentiles. That, he just uses that word as a, as, a, as a word for unbelievers. Our lives should be characterized, guys, by living and pursuing the will of God. And He brings suffering into our life to sanctify us in that area. So we've already wasted enough time. We've already wasted enough time living for these, uh, verse 2, the lusts of men. Verse 3, the desires of the Gentiles. And, that, and, and really, we're not going to go through those, those in, in verse 3. It's just a, a list of sensual sins. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. But it's real important that we speak to that just a moment. I thought of two texts to really tie this will of God and how important it is. Uh, the first one is Matthew 7. Matthew seven twenty one through 23 Because there's many professing Christians. Many people who profess the name of Christ and they've never made a break with sin. They've never made a break with a, with a vice list. I guess you could say like this. A list of sensual sins. Matthew 7, 21-23. The, the very familiar words by Christ. He says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of My Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to Me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? And in Your name cast out demons, and in Your name perform many miracles? And He says... Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Depart from me from you who practice lawlessness. And then I want to read another text and come back to that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-5. through He says this, For this is the will of God. So, so here we can see another clear picture of, of what the will of God is for us. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So we see God's will. God's will clearly is to abstain from sexual immorality. We think about this crowd in Matthew 7. This, this is such an important text, guys, because these are people who, who think they're Christians when they stand before Christ. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. In other words, you, you, you profess Me with your mouth, but you live your life as if God never spoke, as if God never gave a law to obey. You're lawless. It's the same language. The same language as in, in, in Thessalonians. When these people never made a break with sin. They never made a break specifically with sexual immorality. And the, and the, and the, the list that we see in, in Peter, just this 
this list that described the Gentiles, the unbelieving world. There are so many people who profess the name of Christ, but who live this kind of lifestyle. And I used to be one of them. Our culture's full of them. And so it's just a warning. It's a warning for us as believers, for us as true believers, guys, as true believers, those who are born of God's Spirit, the will of God is our sexual purity. Okay? That's, that's the will of God. We don't even need to be messing with those things. Okay? We need to flee sexual immorality. And it's just our culture just surrounds us. We're, we're engulfed in it. But we're to flee it. We're to have nothing to do with it. I know you guys know that, but we need to be reminded from the Word of God. When you think about Joseph in Potiphar's house, you remember when his Potiphar's wife approached him on multiple occasions and wanted, wanted him to lay with her? What did he do? Did he, did he contemplate it? Did he fool around with it? No, it says he fled. He ran out the door. And that is what the New Testament says as well, guys. For believers... We need to flee sexual immorality. Flee it. Do I have nothing to do with it? Okay? Do I have nothing to do with it? So we know where we're going. In other words, guys, back to, back to our Peter. We know where we're going. We have the mind of Christ. We think like Christ. We have the same purpose of Christ. And we know where we're going. We want to follow God's will. Whatever that is. Sexual purity. We're going to follow God's will. We're going to take the gospel to the world even if it means that we suffer. We've made a break with sin. We chose to follow Christ. And through suffering, that's made evident. Now, the next point in verses 4 and 5. When we are truly following Christ in this way, the world will push back. The world will push back, but they will give an account. Okay, The world will push back, but they will give an account. In verses 4 and 5. It says, in all of this, okay, in all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. This is what I spoke a while ago when I jumped ahead of myself. We really see, guys, what it means to be aliens and exiles and strangers in this world in this verse. You know, I was thinking about, I think every, everybody who's in ministry would probably desire to be full-time where they could devote their all of their time, you know, to uh, being in God's Word and ministering to God's people. And um, but but I thought I've heard this I've heard this said by more than one pastor I know who was full time. You know, just think of think of you have an office at church and you spend most of your time around Christians at the church or or visiting uh, your people in the hospital. And I've heard I've heard pastors say this. That's why I thought of it. I've heard them say that. Man, I spend all of my time with Christians during the week that I really forget what a lost world there is out there and what it's like to be around unbelievers. And, and so for that reason, I'm glad that I'm still out in the world a lot, working a secular job and these type of things, of just remembering that we truly are aliens and strangers. And if you're just around Christians all the time, you can forget that. That's my point. We can forget, guys, that we are truly... We are truly strangers just passing through this world. And so it says in verse 4, in all this, or, or therefore, or with reference to all of this, it says, 
They are surprised that you do not run with them. That word surprise is a strong word. It means they are astonished. The world, maybe your former friends, are astonished and even shocked that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, the, the sinful lifestyle. They're, they're shocked. You really, have, you ever, have you ever experienced that? Just the, the, the shock of you're just trying to live a faithful Christian life and, and the pushback you get? I remember, um, and, and I think they're shocked because of this reason. They think it's normal to just live in all kinds of sexual immorality. It's just, and it is normal for the world. And I think that's why they're shocked. I can remember when Trish and I were dating. I can remember some guys at my job, and I can remember some individuals in her family. Who, they were shocked when they heard that Trish and I were actually being pure up to our wedding. I mean, it was just like, no way, people don't do that. And, and sometimes, they'll, they'll even take offense. They'll take it one step further. And that's, that's what's going on here in verse 4. They take offense. Why would they take offense? Because it brings conviction to them. It brings... It sheds light to bear on their sin. You don't even have to... You don't even have to necessarily say anything that what they're doing is wrong. It's just your very lifestyle sheds light on their sin. And they take offense. And it says they end up maligning you. But before that, it says they, it says in all this, they're surprised, they're shocked that you don't run with them into the same excess of dissipation and they malign you. That, that word dissipation is just the state of mind that is so corrupt that it continually thinks of evil and how his passions can be in, indulged. And I, I can think back in my life as an unbeliever, that's, that's how my mind was in many ways. Job 15, 16 says this, the man, the man who is detestable and corrupt, who drinks in iniquity like water. That's the, that's the sinful world, guys. It's the person who just, their mind is on sin and evil continually. How they can fulfill their lust. It's really just a picture of total depravity. What we talk about total depravity. Not that a man is as bad as he can be, but really that, that there's not a single part of his person, the members of his, of, his, of his person that's not affected by sin or infected with sin. That's his phrase, and it says they... they uh, and, then, and then other... You know, a lot of times it's merely... Again, you don't have to, you don't have to preach to them, but just an avoidance of sin... It often implies a condemnation of that sin that they may be involved in when you're being salt. And so it strickens their conscience. It strickens their conscience, but rather than repent, it says they malign you. They malign you. Just the idea of evil speech and slander. What did Potiphar's wife do to Joseph when he refused? She slandered him. She, she lied about him. And he ended up spending time in prison because of it. But in verse 5, will they get away with it? Will they get away with this maligning you? No, it says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They're going to give an account. 
That's courtroom language, guys. The giving an account is courtroom language. Before and, and obviously if it's courtroom language, they're going to stand before the judge and give an account. Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13 says, God is a righteous judge. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Your version may say, He's angry with the wicked every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. We talked about that those verses a few months ago. And I just remember Spurgeon saying about that text, God's arrows never miss the mark. So they will give an account. Unbelievers will give an account. And it says, they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. All humanity, past, present, future, those who have died and those who are alive at His return, they will be accountable. Nobody will escape, in other words, His righteous judgment. See, people, people can escape the judgment in our justice system because there's corruption, because men aren't omniscient, they don't know all things, so people get away with things a lot. But on that day, it says, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil, will be brought into judgment. And so I was going to say to the children, but they're gone. Um, you know, we can get away with things with our parents when we're young. Our parents aren't omniscient. But there's coming that day when, when, when there's going to be a righteous judgment. Nothing is hidden from the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. But for those of us who are Christians, guys, this is an encouragement for us. Because you know what it says? All things will be brought into judgment whether it is good or evil. So God, God doesn't miss a thing that you do in the name of Christ. You don't have to go announcing to everybody else that you did this for Christ. God notices it. God sees it. And He'll take that into account as well. Our obedience. Okay? So we don't have to always let our, our right hand doesn't always have to know what our left hand is doing. We just faithful to Christ and God sees it all. And then, and then fifthly, lastly, in verse 6, uh, we can just see that we're uh, motivated to evangelize. Okay, We're motivated to evangelize. Which I'll say, anytime that, anytime that we're motivated to evangelize, that, that is sanctification. We're being made like Christ. Because that's what He has called us to do. So look at verse 6. For the Gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. For the Gospel has for this purpose. For what purpose? <clears throat> because judgment is coming. Okay, Because judgment is coming, the Gospel was preached widely. That's what Peter was saying. What is it that prepares people to stand before the judge? What is the only thing that can prepare people to stand before the judge? The Gospel. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Christ. That He died. 
for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day. The Gospel prepares people for that day. The good news. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospel is what prepares people to give an account to the God of heaven. When we turn from our sin, you know, biblical repentance, I was just reading just the other day, just a reminder of what biblical repentance is. Biblical repentance is not just ceasing from sin, but it's turning to that which is hopeful. There's got to be something good to turn to, and it's Christ. The good news, we're turning, yes, from sin, but we're turning to a promise, a hope of forgiveness for our sins through Christ. And so that's that's what gives us hope. And it says in verse 6, For the Gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. That word for... At the, at the beginning of verse 6, points to the word, the word that in the middle of the verse. Or, or, or it's the phrase, think of the phrase, so that, okay? For the gospel was, has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, so that they who are judged in the flesh as men may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Who are these? Now who are these who it says are dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. That just means that they were they are now dead when Peter's writing, but they were not dead when the gospel was preached to them. You guys remember I mentioned that last time. It's really just it's a parallel to how I interpreted verses 19 and 20. If you guys remember that in chapter 3, how the gospel was preached to those in Noah's day who are now spirits in prison. But it's the same idea. And, 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 and all commentators that I read agreed on this. This is just simply saying the Gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are now dead, that though they were judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. So those who are now dead, they were alive when the Gospel was preached to them. This phrase that they were judged in the flesh as men, just simply means their death. Okay? And in one sense, everyone is judged in the flesh as men. It's been appointed for a man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But I think that this group of people specifically are Christian martyrs. Christian martyrs who had endured suffering and persecution. They suffered physically, okay? Even to the point of death. And Peter is telling his readers, again, to view life through God's eyes, okay? The Gospel was preached to these people who are now dead. But it was preached to them when they were alive. That though they were judged in the flesh as men, they may live in spirit according to the will of God. So he's, he's telling his readers to view life, in other words, through, the, through God's eyes. Again, to think like Christ. What did Jesus tell His disciples in Matthew 10.28? Do you remember this? He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, right? Don't fear men. All they can do is take your physical life. But fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The persecutors, in other words, guys, 
many times they think they win, right? They take the life of a believer. And a lot of times the persecutors, they think they've won. But they haven't won anything. They haven't won anything. We know that for a believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Turn over to Daniel chapter 3 real quickly, guys. I'm going to point something out. I think the same principle. Something, again, this, this whole thinking like Christ empowers us to live this kind of faithful life. Daniel 3, 14-18. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember the three friends of Daniel who would not bow to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar made, the statue. And in verses 14, 3-14, it says this, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and <coughs> worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if He does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I believe, I believe the mindset that these young men had was that, you know what, we're not going to obey you. We're not, we're not going to sin against God and obey you. And our God, He'll deliver us. But even if He doesn't, I think their mindset, what they were really thinking, even if He doesn't deliver us physically, He's going to deliver us because we're going to be in His presence. So either way, either way we win, we're being faithful to God because they had a mind that was on the life to come. Does that make sense? That's where their mind was at. Even if you do take our life, our God's going to deliver us. And so we got to have a mind like this, guys. Our life is not our own. I believe that's what this whole text is saying. We have been bought with a price. This life is a mist. And we're living for a heavenly country. Do you believe that here today? You believe you're living for a heavenly country. We are just passing through. And so when we hear of a Christian being martyred, we don't need to be discouraged. Yes, we can be sad, but we don't need to be discouraged. That is victory for the Christian. And there may have been, in Peter's context, there may have been unbelievers thinking, or arguing that you see there's no advantage into being a Christian. They both die. Right? Or and, and even more so, their God let them suffer and die. You ever heard that from an unbeliever? If your God's so loving, why would he let these believers die? Forgetting this, guys, that death is not the ultimate final destiny. Physical death. But the second death is. The second death. For the believer, it's victory. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. But for the unbeliever, it's the second death. 
But these were judged in the flesh. They had the Gospel preached to them before they died, and they believed. That's the point. Because it says, they live in the Spirit according to the will of God. You know all this is simply saying, guys? Believers who die are triumphantly alive with the Lord. They are more alive than they've ever been. Yes, they were, they were, uh, they were judged in the flesh as men. But they're alive to God in the Spirit. Their faith has now been made sight. Romans 8.18 Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Beloved, we should not fear suffering for Christ. We need to think like Him, be motivated to pursue the will of God, even if it meant suffering unto death. And so if we were to suffer to the point of death, Yes, we would, we would need not fear. We would be absent from the body, present with the Lord, and obviously we would be completely free from sin through death. But beloved, in this life, okay, in this life that God has given us, however much time we have left, let's allow God to sanctify us through suffering. Don't run from suffering, but allow God to sanctify you through suffering. Denying ourselves daily. And like, and like the disciples of old that we saw, like the missionaries that we've read about, out of love for those, even those who oppose us, take the Gospel to them. That's what we see with somebody living with the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, Lord. Thank You for the... Lord, that, that when we have eyes to see, Lord, when we have eyes to see as, as, as Christ sees and an eternal mindset, Lord. We, we see, Father, how this life is truly, is truly a vapor and it's just preparation for the next, Lord. And we see that, God, we're going to be with You real soon. And so, Father, I pray that You would help everybody here today, Lord, to, to just zone in, focus upon Christ. When we read about Christ and His life and, and how He walked through this life and the mission that He was on, Lord, may we model that in our lives. Father, may we love those people, God, who even, even who may be threats to us, who may oppose us, Lord, may we pursue them in love, Lord, regardless of what it costs us. Father, because we know that eternal life is what matters, Lord. That we don't desire to see the wicked perish, Lord, but that they would come to repentance. So, Father, please create that in us, Lord. Help us to, to think about our, our short span of life, Lord, the, the way you see it, the same way you think about it. We thank you and we love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.